It's time for another episode of Tom Psychast. Let's explore the universe while pushing the limits of what we know with our imaginations, some speculation, philosophy, and of course, science fiction. This is a podcast about all things science. And today, I'm going to plug my favorite branch of science. Do I have a favorite branch? I don't think so. But I'm going to plug biology. And today, I hope to convince you that biology is the apex of science. You know, for years, biology was often looked down upon by the other branches of the natural sciences, including the physicists and the chemists. You can even see this today in like modern memes. There's one going around and it says, Physics cat prefers to sit on something soft. And of course, there's a cat sitting on a biology book, implying that biology compared to physics or chemistry or something like that is a soft science. Well, of course, I disagree. But even going back to as recently as the 1990s, my chemistry book called itself Chemistry, the Central Science. So for a long time, you know, biology was considered a soft science compared to these other fields of the natural sciences, especially chemistry and physics, because, well, you know, biology, our start was mostly as a descriptive science with few experiments, with few mathematical models. I'll come back to that. But biology is one of the natural sciences. And in fact, we can break this down. Let's go to our Wikipedia page. What does it say about the natural sciences? Well, natural sciences study natural phenomena based on empirical evidence from either observations or experimentation. So you can have both. Wait a second. Did I just define a word using the same word? Natural sciences, natural phenomena. Well, natural phenomena. These are things that are happening that aren't man-made, but we can observe them measure them, or test for them. That's how we know they actually exist. Okay, so we got the natural sciences studying the natural world, natural phenomena. And these natural sciences are broadly divided into the physical sciences and the life sciences. Think biology. And of course, we can divide this further into smaller and smaller subdisciplines. So broadly, there's the pillars of the physical sciences, chemistry and physics, but there's also astronomy and earth sciences. And astronomy, that can be divided into astrophysicists or cosmologists, not to be confused with cosmetologists or planetary scientists or people who only study stars. There's also the earth sciences. You could study geology, you can even break that down and study soils, mountain building, or volcanoes. That's just some subdivisions. You can also study climate science and meteorology. You could even study micrometeorology. Micrometeorology. I know, I actually took that class. It may have been one of the hardest classes I ever took. And it was about studying the climate at the scale of like leaves. So really small. Now we can, of course, keep deep diving here. There's the life sciences. This, of course, is biology. Now, a lot of people call it biology, physiology, and medicine, 
But the reality is this life sciences comes down to biology. And this itself is broad. Evolution, ecology, physiology, medicine, botany, zoology, genetics, etc. I mean, you can even subdivide this further. Somebody goes, I'm a zoologist. Well, are you an ichthyologist? You study fish. Ornithology, studying birds. Herpetology, studying reptiles and amphibians. You get the idea. You can be an entomologist. You study insects. Wait, you could even be a coleopterist who only studies beetles. Now, not only that, these fields usually overlap. So let's say you study frogs. Well, you might study their ecology, their evolution, their physiology, or their natural history. So the point here is somebody who considers themselves a herpetologist might also know things like ecology or evolution or even physiology. But getting back to this soft science or hard science, this issue that we have here, soft sciences typically are viewed as not having a rigorous component to them. They lack experimentation. So that's one of the reasons why historically biology was considered to be a bit of a soft science versus a hard science. Now, hard science, yeah. You know, I'll be the first to admit that some of my physics classes were really hard. And things like general relativity, yeah, I can tell you, you know, that an object of mass kind of curves space-time, and I can qualitatively understand the basics of it sometimes on a good day, or the standard model of quantum physics that explains how the world works at the very small scale of atoms. These theories, I mean, to really master them might be some of the most difficult subjects for people to understand. And in fact, one of the smartest students I've ever had he struggled in a class called general relativity. So going back to the 1800s, you know, the physicists and the chemists, they were doing experiments and they were having this rigorous mathematical modeling of physics and to some degree chemistry. So, you know, these physicists, I mean, they're right to believe their field is a hard science because it's based on experiments and rigorous mathematical models and some of those models are kind of complex. They're, they're beyond most people's understanding unless you study them for a living. Chemistry, that's also a hard science. And as I said earlier, it's often considered the central science because physics is its bedrock, but it's used to explain the states of matter and how it interacts and combines to make new substances. So of course, chemistry and physics they underlie biology. They form part of the bedrock, the foundation of biology. Now, biology, it began mostly as natural history, a descriptive science leading many to think of biology as this soft science. And this is in contrast to physics. Going all the way back to 1687, when Newton published Principia, where he basically laid down the principles of physics using math. Okay, so yeah, you know, chemistry, physics, definitely hard science. Biology is also definitely one of the hard sciences because it does rely on rigorous testing as well. But there's a reason why biology began as mostly natural history, this descriptive science. And it makes sense because there are millions of species 
found across this planet. At the smallest scale are the prokaryotes. These microbes, some people even call them little bugs, they can live almost anywhere you can imagine. Two miles below the Antarctic ice, not a problem. Boiling water that's acidic and salty, not a problem. You'll find some prokaryote living there. We also have multicellular organisms too. Think like plants, animals, fungus. And you can find them almost anywhere on the surface of this planet, except where it's really hot or really cold. But our world is teeming with life. Millions of different species. And the first naturalists were going out and just collecting and describing all of these different species and where they are found. Because the distributions of plants and animals is not even across this planet. Like I said, some places like the Antarctic, there's not a whole lot down there. Other places, like a rainforest or a coral reef, they're just teeming with life. Also, biology is actually really complex and really broad. As I've studied biology my whole life, one thing I've come to realize or actually several things I've come to realize, is I appreciate this complexity of biology. It's messy. It is not easily reduced to a few first principles that you might find in physics or chemistry. This might be something like the general theory of relativity that explains gravity, predicts black holes, gravitational waves, or the laws of thermodynamics that govern energy transformations you know, the first law and second law of thermodynamics, or Maxwell's equations. And they state the fundamentals of electricity and magnetism. Or in chemistry, there's chemical bonding and the states of matter. And from those first principles, amongst others, I'm not giving an exhaustive list here, you can learn a lot about the universe. We still don't know everything. We still haven't combined quantum physics, you know, the standard model with relativity very well. So there's still work to be done there. But in general, these first principles do a very good job of explaining the natural world. And I must say that even though biology is complex, we lack those basic first principles of chemistry and physics. Biology absolutely follows the laws of nature, including relativity or Maxwell's equations or specifically the laws of thermodynamics. And we, of course, depend on bonding, chemical bonding. Another unique feature of biology this is broad. There's a lot, and we integrate a lot of different concepts to understanding biological systems. I'm going to get to that here soon. And it's part of the reason why I like to consider biology the apex of science, because we do draw on these other fields. This means that for a biologist, it could take a long time to acquire the knowledge or experience to really get good at it. It's hard to be groundbreaking in biology in your 20s. For us, a lot of it happens in our 40s and 50s after we've got a few decades of experience learning about our systems. That's quite different from the physicist, often. Not always, though. I can use my own experiences as someone who studied ecology and other earth sciences like geology, hydrology, Isotope geochemistry, and that's a wild one, isn't it? Isotope geochemistry. Oh, and just simple geochemistry as well. But 
it took a lot of knowledge and it took a lot of observations and just natural history knowledge for me to begin to understand the system that I wanted to work on. And I can say that over the years of observing, experimenting, learning, teaching science, I've come to realize that biology is this apex of science. It sits on top of the mountain of all the other branches of natural sciences, integrating them, using parts of them. Biology is not separate from chemistry or physics or even geology. And what this means is to be a good biologist, whether you're a birder interested mostly in natural history of where you can find all the rare and cool birds, or you're a climate modeler studying climate change, an exercise physiologist learning how exercise changes your body, or maybe you're even a marine biologist studying coral reefs on Australia. All of these fields rely on the knowledge of the other branches of science. And this is not totally unique, but very important for biology. But getting back to this, just to remind us, biology does follow these laws of nature, just like chemistry and physics. In fact, we derive our, our boundaries to what biological systems can do from these natural laws. But unlike chemistry and physics, we have fewer first principles. And not to mention, I mean, there's exceptions everywhere in biology. It's complicated. It's messy. So once you think you have something figured out, it surprises you. Let me give you a good example. Let's use frogs. You know, frogs are an amphibian, and you probably learned back in grade school that amphibians return to water to reproduce. And they lay eggs, the male lays a sperm on top of the eggs, they fertilize those eggs, the eggs grow into tadpoles, then the tadpoles slowly morph into adults, and then they crawl out of the water body that they were basically started out in. Yeah, that's the story we've all learned. Well, about 25% of all frogs don't even have a tadpole stage. Like a cookie frog from Puerto Rico. They're direct developers. They lay the eggs in the leaf litter. The egg develops directly into a little froglet, skipping the tadpole stage completely. There's more exceptions here. There's a toad in the Amazon called the Suriname toad. It's 100% aquatic. Never leaves the water. Stays there his whole life. So much for crawling out on the land. Not only that, the female somehow gets the eggs on her back and the eggs embed into her skin. And the tadpoles live inside of her skin. And when they morph into a froglet, then they leave. Oh wait, there's another example of something different. There is Darwin's frog down in South America. Darwin frog, the male, watches over the eggs. And when the eggs start to hatch, he swallows the tadpoles. You heard me. He swallows the tadpoles. And then the tadpoles develop into tiny little froglets in his vocal sac. And once they're froglets, he coughs them right out and they go hopping off. So that's biology. First principles. Yeah, right. You know, biology, there's exceptions everywhere. But that is what makes biology also fun. And using frogs, just to show a few exceptions to our narrative of how frogs reproduce, that's biology. We find this across the globe. And to get to know those stories requires a lot of observations. 
We also use experimentations as well. But biology does rely on a lot of observations. But I want to dive further into why biology is the apex of science. And to do this, I'm going to stick with what I know. I'm going to use my own research to show how biology depends on almost every field of the natural sciences. It's impressive. So, you know, years ago, I developed an interest in studying strings. This came out of my love of the Wakulla River, where I grew up in North Florida. And I also like the Wasissa River, too. In 2004, I moved out to New Mexico, and I turned my attention to the Rio Grande River. Yes, I called it the Rio Grande River. I know, Rio means river in Spanish, but Rio Grande could also mean a valley, a high school. You get the idea. So I'm telling you, I'm studying the river. And my interest was focused on how dams affect the Rio Grande River. Specifically, being a biologist, I was really curious about how it's affecting the plants and animals that lived near the river or in it. So dams clearly have an impact on the communities. And when I talk about community, I mean the biological community. All the different organisms living together and interacting with each other. The Rio Grande River is the third longest river in the U.S. So I didn't want to study the entire river. I focused it on a stretch called the Middle Rio Grande which flows basically through the middle part of New Mexico, from just north of Elephant Butte to around Cochiti, and of course, it flows right through Albuquerque. So let's go down the rabbit hole and see why biology is the apex of science. So my interests were on the effects of dams, mostly on the biological communities, the plants, the animals, and the fungus. I didn't get too much into the plants. I really focused on the animals I know, I'm animal-centric. But just to understand the biological community, I had to learn about the natural history. What are the different organisms that are there? I had to learn about the bosque and the cottonwoods that line the river. This is natural history. Who's there? What are they doing? The community along the bosque depends on the water from the river. And that water comes from the southern San Juan Mountains of Colorado. So river flow, the amount of water coming down the river and its seasonal variations depend on the snowpack up in Colorado. The amount of snow depends on the climate and various climate variations based on wet and dry years. And you can have a wet and dry year based on natural phenomena like La Nina and El Nino. So think about this. Things that are happening, weather phenomena out in the Pacific can affect how much snowpack we have up in the Colorado mountains, which affects the amount of water coming down the Rio Grande River, which affects those biological communities. So just to understand the origins of the water and the seasonal and yearly variations in water flow, you need to know a little bit about climatology. Okay, let's continue on with this. At its headwaters, the Rio Grande starts as a clear, swift-moving mountain stream. Now, by the time it reaches Albuquerque, which is part of the middle Rio Grande here in New Mexico, it is a slow-moving, brown-colored river with a heavy sediment load and branched. This is very different than its headwaters. So it broadens into this large, desert kind of braided river. 
So if we need to understand climatology for its river flows and seasonal variations, well, geology plays an important role in the course of the river. So the geology of the area determines where the river is going to flow. For those of you that aren't familiar with this area, the Rio Grande River flows right down the Rio Grande Rift Valley. Rift Valley? I thought those were in Africa. Well, guess what? We have one here in New Mexico. And it formed the Sandias and the Manzano Mountains. And it also gave us some volcanoes there just west of town. Fortunately, those volcanoes aren't active right now. So the Rio Grande River is flowing through this Rift Valley. So the geology of the area impacts or influences where the river is flowing now. And of course, we're out here in the West. There's Rocky Mountains. The plates are very active. So that's altered the course of the river over, over large timescales of millions of years. Let's not forget that also this area has undergone dramatic climate change as we've entered and exited ice ages during the Pleistocene. And even before that, it was warmer during the Pliocene. So now you can start to see that geology is affecting the course of the river. We've even had past climate effects affecting historical water flows. Now let's take two of those other physical sciences, chemistry and geology, stamp them together, and we're going to get geochemistry. And with our knowledge of geochemistry, we can understand certain properties of the water, like its pH, its conductivity, the amount of dissolved oxygen it has, what its nutrient load is, because that is going to have a profound effect on the organisms that can live in the water. I know, we're starting to add all these different things together, aren't we? Okay, geology, climate science, geochemistry, chemistry. How about hydrology? Hydrology is really important because this helps us understand not only how the surface water is moving, how the river flows and creates a channel or how it overbanks into the bosque, but it also interacts with the groundwater. So in the middle of Rio Grande, there's what we call the bosque. That just means forest, and it's dominated by these really beautiful cottonwood trees. And as the Rio Grande River flows through this area, it brings water to the groundwater. It supplies the aquifers. And that shallow aquifer supplies the water for these cottonwood trees to grow. So understanding some of the dynamics of the bosque, we need to also understand the hydrology. And then, of course, each spring we have high flows that historically flooded the bosque, removing biomass either physically by washing it downstream or decomposing it. And understanding its decomposition, guess what? That's chemistry. And in fact, that's a lot of biochemistry. Now, returning back to my interest in the Rio Grande River, I'm just going to call it the river from here on out. I was interested in you know, what the effects of dams were. Dams alter water flows. They prevent a lot of the flooding of the bosque. One of the consequences of dams and reducing peak flows, reducing the hydrograph, you know, where it doesn't flow as much there in the spring as it historically would, that prevents overbanking. That prevents the river from flooding the bosque. Now, humans, we got this idea that rivers should never flood but they do, and it's actually quite important for the surrounding areas. In our case, it helps remove debris, 
it lowers the banks, allows for it to flood easier, and it might also help with the silvery minnows bonding as well. By reducing those flows, it doesn't flood, and that causes the channel, the river to channelize and cut deeper and deeper and deeper, separating itself from the bosky, which also changes the hydrology of the area, which over time will change the bosky because baby cottonwoods won't be able to get established because the groundwater will be too low for them. So the old trees will hang on, but when they die, there won't be any new cottonwoods. So these are some of the effects of dams on these rivers. We're changing the hydrology, which in turn changes the composition of the trees growing adjacent to the river in the riparian area. Are you starting to see how biology depends on all these other branches of science? I hope so. Let's keep going here. There's a lot more, actually. We know that rivers and other aquatic systems, including oceans and lakes, are connected to their adjacent terrestrial ecosystems, the areas on land. And they're connected by nutrient and energy flows. So think about this. Energy flows, nutrients like nitrates and phosphates and carbon. Follow me here. Energy flows and energy usage are explained in physics by the laws of thermodynamics. This puts limits on how much energy can be used and transferred up a food chain. Food chains are a very simplistic version of a food web. But from these laws of physics, thermodynamics specifically, we know that energy must flow through life, through an individual organism, and it also flows through ecosystems. You cannot recycle energy. You have to have a constant supply of it. So that informs us. This physics informs us about some of the natures of our ecosystems and puts limits on food webs. You can only have so many apex predators because every time you go up in a trophic level, a feeding level, get a higher and higher predator, most of the energy is lost, very inefficient. Let's turn our attention to nutrient flow, like carbon and nitrogen. This is dependent on biology, physics, and geology. A lot of life sciences here and physical sciences. We're going to go deeper down the rabbit hole here. Algae growing in a river gets its energy by converting sunlight into stored energy that you find in carbs. So to understand photosynthesis, you need to know about the physics of electromagnetic radiation, okay? Knowing organic chemistry is also very helpful. That way you can understand something called the Calvin-Benson cycle. This is where a plant or a photosynthetic organism takes carbon dioxide and fixes it into an organic molecule. And it's also important to understand the structure of cells and chloroplasts. Because understanding the structure of a chloroplast can help you understand how the light reaction and the light-independent reaction work. It doesn't stop here. It turns out that to really appreciate and fully understand photosynthesis, we may even need to understand and apply quantum physics to it. Wow. I know. That's a lot. Just to understand how some algae is converting sunlight into chemical energy stored in a carbohydrate. Very complex. That's photosynthesis. Now along comes a little aquatic larvae insect. 
and it eats that algae and will incorporate the carbon in that algae into itself and also use that energy as well. And eventually that little larval insect will morph into an adult and crawl out of the river. And when it does so, it's got a hard life ahead of it because lining up along the riverbank are lots of predators like lizards. If you've ever crossed a bridge and you've seen a lot of birds flying over it, those are little swallows usually. Around here, they're called cliff swallows. They're eating all the insects flying off the river. There's spiders also lined up along the rivers, toad bugs, tiger beetles, all of these predaceous animals just waiting to nail those insects that are emerging out of the river. What's going on here is that this transition zone, also known as an ecotone, is full of predators. The ecotone being full of predators, like 75, 90% predators, actually goes against what we would think of as a first principle of ecology. Well, it seems like there's always some exception to a first principle in ecology here. Here's what's going on. You don't normally find an ecosystem dominated by predators. And the reason why is the laws of thermodynamics. Most of the usable energy is lost in an ecosystem through feeding. Think about it this way. You've got algae in the river. Let's say you have enough algae to give you 100 joules of energy and some herbivore you know, aquatic insect comes along and grazes on that algae. Only about 10% of that energy will go to that herbivore. And then when it emerges out of the river and gets eaten by a tiger beetle, only about one joule of that energy will go to that tiger beetle. I know I'm, that's a lot of energy for a tiger beetle, but you get the point. 99% is lost by the time you get to a predator. So we don't expect to find a lot of predators. You would expect it to be dominated by, you know, producers, the algae. But there's a supplement going on. That ecotone, the beach, the shoreline along the river is being supplemented by a flux of nutrients and energy from the Rio Grande River. Now, interestingly, we can also look at the chemical signatures of the carbon and the nitrogen, specifically the carbon, to see that it was actually fixed by algae rather than a terrestrial plant. That helps us know that the carbon is actually coming from algae and not the cottonwoods or grasses along the banks. That's how we know the subsidy is happening. And of course, whenever you have river channelization from a dam, you have a lot less diversity along the river. So to understand that, right, I need to know some natural history. I need to know some isotope geochemistry to look at my isotopic ratios of the carbon atoms and compare them to some standard to know that it's coming from, from algae doing photosynthesis in the river. So as you can see, I'm starting to combine all these different fields, chemistry, geochemistry, physics, geology, hydrology, natural history, ecology, even climatology. All of this is affecting the critters living in and on the river. And we can also use isotope geochemistry for a lot of things. I mean, we can track nutrient flows through an ecosystem. We can track pollution. Here's a good one for you. We can use isotopes to find iron that's landed on the surface of the earth from ancient supernovas. That's a pretty good one. I'm not done yet. 
let's go deeper down the rabbit hole. And if I was getting back to my roots, I'd be like, holding my beer. Wait, that's one of the most dangerous statements a guy could ever say. So we're just going to go down the rabbit hole. Many of the organisms, the middle Rio Grande, time their life cycles to the seasons and river flows. So this timing of life stages is known as phenology. And that's very important because they time it for the seasons. So plants along the bosque, they leaf out and grow when it warms up. And there's a fish living in the river, near and dear to my heart, called the Rio Grande Silvery Minnow. It's really cool. It's also endangered, sadly. So this fish is a pelagic spawner. And they spawn, they coincide their spawning with peak river flows in May. Those spring flows are the result of snow melt up in the San Juans. Now, whether you're a cottonwood tree or a Rio Grande silvery minnow, you're picking up on some environmental cue. For a plant, it might be a longer day, but that plant has to be able to detect the changes in daylight. So there's some protein that's detecting a change in daylight, or it's got some clock, some kind of biological clock going on. And as it gets warmer or the daylight gets longer, whatever that receptor is, it's going to trigger the expression of a whole bunch of genes that will cause that tree to come out of dormancy. It will begin to grow leaves and the tree will also begin to grow thicker. The silvery minnow, it's no different. It picks up on some environmental cue that is time to spawn. I don't know exactly what that environmental cue is, whether there's something in the water, some chemical it detects, or just the speed of the water, but either way, they detect some environmental cue that is time to spawn. So they stop growing and they start producing lots of gametes so they can spawn coinciding with this high water mark. So to begin spawning, there's a signal that causes a lot of changes in that fish by changing gene expression. And it's also going to change some of the physiology of the fish. Interestingly, you know, there's fish in the Rio Grande. Not everybody knows this, but there's fish there. Not a lot, but there's ones that can tolerate it. If you wanted to know which fish live in this river, you need to do some surveys. Who's there? Where are they found? How abundant are they? And to understand how those fish can survive there, you need to understand different aspects of their physiology because that's going to determine the range of conditions where they can live. Once again, we got to get back to those water parameters too, like pH, temperature, dissolved oxygen, nutrient load, conductivity. All of these physical characteristics of the river, also its flow, its depth, nutrient load, biological activity, all of these things combine along with the history of the area. What was its original course? Has it connected to other rivers? What's been the evolution of the fish in the river over tens of thousands, millions of years? All of this matters, doesn't it? Historical geology of the area, historical courses of the river and evolution. All of these things affect the fish and the other organisms that live in the river and next to it as well. Let's take a step back. Let's put this together. To understand 
the biological community, you know, all the plants and animals and microbes that live along the Rio Grande River and this bosque, we need to know the natural history. Who's there? When are they there? What are they doing? You need to know the paleontology, the history of the area, the past geology, the evolution of the fish and other organisms that have lived there. You got to know their physiology. You want to understand how they know to spawn? Guess what? That's genetics. We also need to know ecology, hydrology, geochemistry, the climatology. I've also said this before in some of my previous podcasts, but one of my geology friends once told me that life is an extension of geological processes. So when you start thinking about the nutrient flows, water cycles, these things are affected by the climate, by the geology, and the organisms that live there. Life on this planet has drastically altered the atmosphere and the soils on the planet. It's all connected. Okay, there is more. Biology depends on astronomy also. That comes of no surprise to anybody that's listened to some of my previous podcasts. I already told you earlier in this one that algae converts the energy in sunlight to stored energy in carbs. So we're going to convert, you know, kinetic energy to chemical energy or potential energy. But that energy, energy in sunlight, comes from our sun through a process called nuclear fusion. This is a stellar process. Life depends on a star for its energy. Not all life on this planet depends on the sun for its energy, but most of it does. Let's go even further. Life is made up of basic building blocks. I'm not talking about the carbs and the lipids and the nucleic acids and the proteins. Those are even made up by elements like hydrogen, carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, phosphorus, sulfur. We also need electrolytes. You know, plants crave electrolytes, right? Like Brondo. So you need calcium, potassium, sodium, chloride, magnesium, and iron. All of these elements, or at least the elements beyond hydrogen, they were made in stars that lived and died as supernovas billions of years ago. So even the fundamental building blocks of life, the carbon, the nitrogen, the hydrogen, the oxygen, and a few others that I mentioned, those are made inside of stars that are long gone. Biology, life, is connected to the universe. To me, all of this paints the picture that biology is the apex of science. But before I end, there's one last thing I'd like to hurl at you about biology. You know, we also use math and statistics as well. You know, just like physics or climatology, some biologists, we use mathematical models like the Laca Volterra models to predict predator-prey relationships or Hardy-Weinberg equilibrium to test for evolution. Granted, these are simple models, but we still use mathematical modeling to understand and make predictions about how life works on our planet. And we don't use just mathematical models. We also rely heavily on statistics. And in fact, I've been saying for years, dump the calculus requirement in biology. 
In all of my years of doing biology, I have rarely ever used calculus. Now, granted, I used it in that micrometeorology class and in my hydrology class, but the thing that I needed the most was stats. And in fact, I wish I had a degree in statistics so I would know how to design experiments and analyze the data because a lot of biology requires on good experimental design and analyzing data. I'm a biologist and we wear a lot of hats. We have to have an understanding of a lot of these different fields, especially for whatever subfield we're studying. And going forward, there's even a growing field called astrobiology. I know if you've listened to any of my podcasts, you know that I love astrobiology and that uses everything we know about biology here on earth, along with planetary geology to study the origins, the evolution, the distribution, and the future of life in the universe. So I can safely say as a biologist, I don't have physics envy, wishing that we had a few first principles to build our field on. Biology to me is exciting. It uses all the fields of science. It's enormous with so many questions and so many exceptions. And to me, that's fun. So just when you think you've got something figured out, like a new species will come along and do something different elsewhere. I mean, for years, I often taught that male ants don't have dads, but they have granddads because of the haplodiploidy system. I'm not going to go into that here, but it turns out that I just learned literally the day I did this podcast that there's an ant from the Amazon that likely reproduces completely asexually. So there's yet another exception. And to me, that's what makes biology fun. It's not just about experiments. It's not just about making observations. We do it all. And we get to learn a little bit about all the other fields of science. And I love that. So there it is. Biology is the apex of science. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can follow me on Facebook as Tom Sidecast and let me know what you think of these episodes. And if you have a suggestion for any episode you would like me to do, feel free to let me know. Until next time, stay curious.